0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to ForageCast, a podcast from Forage Genetics. Each month, we take a deep dive into alfalfa topics and address real, on-farm issues that revolve around alfalfa's integration into cropping systems. And now, here's your host, Emily Message.
1: Welcome to this episode of ForageCast, sponsored by Forage Genetics International. I'm your host, Dr. Emily Message, Technical Support Specialist with FGI. Today, we have a little different format and we are fortunate to be joined by several highly regarded agronomists and forage specialists that are well known to the industry. First, we have Dr. Dan Andersander, Professor Emeritus at University of Wisconsin. Joining Dan is Dr. Glenn Shoemaker, Professor Emeritus at University of Idaho, along with Mylon Boley, almost retired, research faculty at Oregon State University, and last but certainly not least, Dr. Steve Franzen, the pasture preacher himself, and professor of agronomy at Washington State University. Now, for those of you familiar with these gentlemen, you should see a theme, and this group is a group of faculty that are either retired or on the cusp of retirement. This episode stems from a panel that Dr. Franzen and I put together for the 2021 Western Alfalfa and Forage Association Conference in Reno, because we know that we have a large number of forage researchers retiring in the next few years or already retired. It was Steve's idea to try to pick everyone's brains and get some advice as their sort of change of guard, if you will. And I wanted to capitalize on that. So a small group of them agreed to join me on here, and I'm really happy that they did. Gentlemen, thanks again for joining me today.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: I think it's important to highlight the work that's been done in academia in regards to forage research and the role that the relationship between industry and academia has had in advancing our agronomy knowledge. We were just talking about this here. Collectively, we have figured out that we have close to 200 years worth of knowledge and experience on this episode. So I think that that's pretty amazing. We're fortunate to have that. To get started, you know, I know this podcast is titled The Future of Forage Research, but I want to start a little retrospectively, and I want to talk about some of the biggest changes you guys have seen in forage research from when you started your career. Dan, do you want to kick us off on that?
2: Sure. Well, I think first, from an alfalfa standpoint, we really have identified disease resistance. When most of us started, there was little or none in alfalfa, and now it's fairly high levels. Many new diseases, including insect diseases and other kinds of biotic challenges that the alfalfa has. So I think that has been a huge difference. Frankly, I think the GMO reduced lignin alfalfa is the biggest changer at this point in alfalfa for the future. And I think that's going to deal with a lot of the things that we work with. The other kinds of things that I was thinking of is, is not to leave grasses out, but But I was around when we identified the alkaloids and tall fescue as being a problem (laughs) and worked with some of the breeders of the first lines that were released. I think that has been a big change. But in addition, in the grasses, I think we bred for improved quality. We have bred for changes in uh, maturity to allow us to match with other species like alfalfa. And I think those are four or five areas that have been uh, really big things over the last 50 years.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And we don't want to leave the grasses out. Obviously they're a big part of, you know, the forage world, forage conversation as well. So Glenn, what do you think? Do you have any other thoughts on what has changed since you started your career?
3: Well, when I first started, we were analyzing forage quality with the approximate analysis system and And we had a TDN summative equation then. And then we went to the fiber digestibility, which was, in in some regards, was an improvement if we would have, I think, followed through a little further with that. And now we're getting back to digestibilities of that of those fiber fractions and so I think that's really reflected the true forage quality and hopefully that value then can be compensated for as as Dan talked about the, the low lignin and the improved digestibility alfalfas and grasses I think that's been a real plus I
1: agree
2: Glenn, don't forget the introduction of NIR and forage analysis, because uh, that has really taken us from a few thousand samples a year to over a million samples a year across the United States and allowed us to work around the world.
4: Really true.
1: Yeah, something that a researcher like me really takes for granted, having that availability. And for any of us, our listeners, NIR stands for that near-infrared spectroscopy analysis. So it's that, that quick analysis where you can send your sample into the lab and have a report back in just a couple days, um, whereas before it would take sometimes over a week to really get that analysis done through that wet chemistry. So a huge advancement in terms of being able to feed forages to our livestock. So, Mylon, let me ask you the same question then. What are some big changes that you've seen? I guess I, I might take
4: a little different look at it. I guess I, I, mine was more of an extension career than, than research, although I did. I probably got myself hung out there way too far doing research. But just when I started in um, 1989, 1990, it didn't cost much to do the research on station or off station. And over the years, it just kept going uh, higher and higher where the station itself had to start charging us to do this research for variety trials, fertility trials, all this stuff. And to the point of where we really had to start looking for more and more funds and more and more funds uh, to be able to conduct those trials, whether you were on farm or on station, to be able to pull it all off. So that's been a, a big game changer. So at least in my world, it was anyway.
1: Yeah, I know as a young researcher, young faculty, it's tough sometimes to get those programs off the ground, you know, find the funding. And they always talked about before where they had, you know, lab techs that were paid by the department and that sort of thing. They had internal funding that was always available. And again, that's just something that I never even knew what that felt like. So I think that that is definitely a really good point to to be brought up. Steve, I'm going to head to you then and ask you the same exact question. What are some of the changes you've seen?
5: Well, I certainly agree 100% with what Dan and Glenn and Dylan have said. And my thinking on this, I'm just going to expand it and go a little bit of a different direction. And thinking in terms of our producers and how they're going to be impacted by what we have done. And I look out there and uh, the number of producers that we have in the forage world are so fewer compared to 40 years ago. I'll go back that far not only the producers the dairy producers the hay producers because all the farms have got bigger so we've got fewer producers actually out there doing it but when you look at the suppliers the fertilizer suppliers the chemical companies that we used to have dozens and now we don't and the machinery the manufacturers we used to have many ma- machinery manufacturers we don't have those anymore And everything is really consolidated. So we've really, the old idea, and I think it goes maybe back to Earl Butts years ago, uh, was get bigger, get out. Well, that industrial model, I don't think really works all that perfectly in the field of forages or agriculture. But in the industrial side of the world, it probably does. But people got to remember, we work with Mother Nature. And and that's a, a, a different kind of a beast to, to be working with. Mylon is right on with the, the costs. I
2: had a couple other thoughts. We didn't mention anything about harvesting or anything like that. No. And the mechanization of harvesting has gone up dramatic. I mean, I go you all maybe did too. I actually handled loose hay when I was young.
4: <laughs> yep, yeah, I did too. And then yep.
2: square bales. <laughs> And then we went to yep. one-ton and a half-ton, so we've really improved the efficiency of harvesting. We've done the same thing with the mowing and chopping and the processing of that forage and the harvesting process, and I look at what's happening with some of the automated tractors and so on. People are going out without a driver on the machine. We're seeing the same thing in the barn in terms of robotic milk, automatic feeders, that even push the forage back to the, to the aisle for the cattle to get. So I, I think we need to recognize that. Now, one more thing, then I'll quit, Emily. <laughs> Along with that, we have greatly improved our ability for on-farm data collection. And the farmers are able to record their yield, their weights, and even their quality. They're recording their milk per cow, a whole bunch of things like that and what i'm hearing more and more now is that the farmer is more of a data manager mm-hmm. than they have been in the past and i think that that's a a real significant change as we go forward
1: great points you know i can't say that i handled loose hay when i was growing up, but I can say that I have seen some beaver slides in action in uh, western Montana. So I don't know if that counts, but you, you know, you go from watching that, and then just a couple weeks ago, I was down in Virginia and I was watching them use, you know, bale accumulators and stacking hay that way. I mean, it's, it is pretty incredible how far technology has gone in, in a fairly short period of time. And, you Farmers, they have a long list of job duties and job descriptors. And you're right. They absolutely have to add, you know, that data analyst on top of that as well, because that's becoming a big part of their decision making process. So, Steve, you brought up a, a really important point, the consolidation of farms. And I want to talk about that a little bit because obviously that's something that's happened in the past. It's still happening today, and it's going to have a huge impact on the future of forages. And here, at least in the Northeast, you know, I'm we're seeing that forages are kind of falling out of favor a little bit. Again, because, you know, they just have so many animals on a fairly small land base. And so they're they're using a lot of corn silage, a lot of the the small grain forages to maximize their production per acre. What are you guys seeing in your different geographies? What's, what impacts of that consolidation on forages in the cropping rotations? We'll start it off with myelin this time.
4: Well, I, I think in Oregon, I think we're seeing both ends of the farms are getting bigger. Some of them are, are very large, but what we're also seeing here too is that it, it, maybe it's the middle, middle-sized middle farms that are losing ground, but we're seeing more and more small farms pop up, more subdivision-type stuff in greater need from an extension stand, especially in the pasture grazing management uh, side of things. And and even a fair number that maybe their 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 livelihood doesn't depend on it, but it's their hobby and they they want to put up their their own hay. And so for those who are mechanically minded, they can afford to go out and they can buy used equipment and, and and do that. But yeah, it's probably just not even just in forages; it's all all commodities really. That the farms are getting bigger out here to be able to uh, have livelihoods, especially if you want to bring your kids back onto the farm. And that where in some respects. Those that aren't coming back to the farm, those are being bought up by the neighbors whose children do want to come back to the farm and that. So,
1: Absolutely. Steve, what about you? You're Mylon's neighbor out there?
5: What are you seeing? I agree with 100% with Mylon. Actually, you kind of sit and think about it. What used to be our medium-sized farms now are becoming more of our small farms. And our medium to large farms are now getting to be really large farms. Yeah. And so so each, each operation is a little bit different, obviously, Emily. But if you think about the dairy operation, they're adding a lot more people there because instead of milking 100 or 200 or 500 cows, you're now milking 3,000 or 4,000 or more. So you need more people and more facilities to do that, just like what Dan's talking about. But some of the, let's say, the hay farms, Because, again, of the mechanization and making those uh, one-ton bales that Dan mentioned, you don't need as many people. You don't need to cover the same amount of ground. And with big pivots, we're not moving hand lines any longer. Wheel lines are, are not nearly like what they used to be. So, we're really moved to pivots and a lot more mechanization there. So, our, our farming dynamics has changed tremendously a number of people that are actually involved in it in these different sectors. So we're, we're seeing the same thing, the consolidation and the shift uh, that's going on here. And, of course, so much of this is doing, impacting marketing. How are we marketing our products? You know, export. We, we, you know, we move milk and stuff all over the country and all over the world. Cheese. And we bring it in two different places. So it's it's a very dynamic fluid situation that's happening, but our farms by and large are increasing and then our small farms uh, are are still there. Okay.
1: So Glenn, we'll keep moving east a little bit more. What are your thoughts there?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that's all correct. And to me, the, this transportation issue is a Big handicap for those that are a little more inland from the export standpoint and the sustainability standpoint, you know, with the rising prices of fuels and input costs, I think we really need to try to... Sure, people want exported products, but rather selling them than selling them a raw material, we need to try to get that reduced to at least a wholesale product or even a retail product. So instead of shipping hay so that another country can produce milk, we need to produce milk and ship them that or a milk product. But but to the inland portions of the U.S., this transportation issue is real.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good good point to bring up. And I know, Dan, you know, you're you're very far inland there in Wisconsin, so you don't deal a whole lot with the export market when it comes to hay, at least. But what are your thoughts on this issue?
2: Well, that's why, yeah, we're on the receiving end most often of hay purchases rather than producing both because of our weather and, and other things. I'm sure you're aware there is a little bit of hay produced up in Canada and shipped out the Great Lakes. <laughs> But, but we're generally <laughs> not in that area. I do want to second, I think, some, some really significant changes. Since I came here, we've gone from 47,000 dairies down to 7,000 yeah. this last year. Now, the number of cows are the same. So that agrees with the speakers that we're just getting bigger farms. But... But there are a couple of things that that means. One is there's fewer people to deal with to give information to or or to convince. And, but the other side of it is it's causing us problems because the bulk of the taxpayers now are not farmers. And we, for example, have an issue going on right now where one of the counties is going to reduce the spring weight limits to 55,000 pounds or less. Which will cut out milk trucks. Oh, wow. So, those 26 there's only 26 dairy farmers left in the state, that county. But if that isn't resolved, they're out of business effective 30 days from now. Wow. Those are the kinds of things that we see happening and why we need to be much more politically proactive than we've been in the past.
1: Yeah. So, so thinking about, we're talking about the future of forages, the future of forage research. What are some things that maybe people in the younger generations could start doing to help with these sorts of issues. I mean, obviously what you just pointed out about the weight limit, that's a huge problem. And I don't think that people always necessarily intend um, for the consequences that, you know, they probably weren't necessarily targeting the dairies, but that's who it's largely going to impact. So what are some action items that we can do that we can get out there and actively promote agriculture?
2: Well, first off, I don't have any good answers. I, I do think it is really important that we keep trying to find ways to Communicate with the non agricultural public. We can't just assume that they know what's going on or what the issues are. I I do think that we need to use some of the new communication systems to get together with farmers. They're a lot more likely to be on Facebook and podcasts and some of these things than farmers were even 10 years ago. But I do think it is important that we do that. The other thing is. I do think the dairy community has to get behind some of the environmental issues a lot more, like greenhouse gases, and we have the potential to do that. A a number of other issues, clean streams and stuff like, we're in fact also getting blamed for a lot of things we're not responsible for, but, Mm but we need to stand up and say we support this and we do this. In Europe, they've largely gone to credits for environmental concerns and various environmental issues, and somehow our dairy industry needs to give that impression rather than just the idea that we're here to produce more milk.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know... We know that I work a lot in this space of sustainability, if you will, and really trying to promote alfalfa and forages in general for use in kind of some of these remediation efforts. And I think that we really need to be a little bit louder, like you're saying, and promote all of the good things that these different, al- that these different forage species can do in terms of, you know, whether it be carbon sequestration, whether it be reducing, you know, greenhouse gas emissions through fertilizer production. I mean, there's all these different avenues and angles that we can look at this with in your guys' tenure in your career you know I know that we've had kind of these sustainability talks before this is not t- the first time that carbon credit conversation has come up are you seeing it as a more real conversation with action items associated with it this time around compared to before or how do you guys kind of view where this whole conversation is going currently and Glenn how about I start with you on that one
3: well I, I think it that the carbon credit and uh, and the conservation aspects the sustainability of ag is more important i think it's recognized by producers i think it's it's still ongoing how that will be monetized and if it's actually doing the amount of benefit that that some of us have proposed but it 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 has many multiple positive factors and as we see the price of inputs like fertilizer go up then the the organic matter the the organic carbon in the soil is critical importance and also the droughts so it's a win-win to to try to to make agriculture more sustainable and of course forages alfalfa being perennial and the grasses it it's the ultimate conservation crop and if and if we can't show uh, positive contributions there then (laughs) we're all in trouble
1: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the the conversation thus far, at least around sustainability in the agricultural world is around, you know, cover crops and tillage versus no till. But I'm I really think that we need to start talking about these perennial forages more. It needs it deserves to be in that conversation on an equal footing with a lot of these other remediation practices because again, it just has so much I don't know if any of the other three have any other thoughts on that as well.
2: I think Lynn's right. And and you're right. I do think we need to stress the perenniality of crops and the fact that we're not tilling and bearing the soil we do have issues with manure management that we have to pay attention to. One of the big challenges I've run into in some areas is the dairy is using sand in barns. And if you don't reclaim that, you're putting a lot of sand on the soil and then changing the structure and composition of the soil. So we need to reclaim sand where we use it. We need to be thinking about the whole picture in these practices, not just the cost effectiveness of one subset of the practices.
1: That's a great point. Finances obviously play a huge role and we can't ask producers to be making these big changes that are going to be capital intensive, but we can't always just be focused on the dollar amount. You know, if if potentially if there's a way to recoup costs and we can gain these significant environmental benefits, that could be a huge boost long term for each individual, too.
4: Yeah, I'm just going to say that, I mean, I think there's more emphasis. People are looking at soil health. I, I know we have some conventional growers out here that are, as they're establishing forage, forage crops, are trying to add some manure. Initially, not a lot, because it really depends on how close that that source is, whether or not you can afford to bring it in or not, uh, sure. you know, from that standpoint. And I want to just briefly go back to what uh, Dan was saying earlier, too, about Some of the changes that are maybe happening in Oregon, our Oregon legislature just passed a law where the hourly wage overtime is going to have to be paid to farm workers time and a half over a certain amount of hours. It's not going to happen right away, but each year, the number of hours that it affects is going to be, you know, ratcheted down. And so that's going to affect farm labor uh, wages and the number of workers out there as well. So, but... uh,
1: That's a a great point to bring up. And especially, too, as it's been harder to find those workers, period. You know, so sourcing them has become obviously financially more demanding. And then having to pay them higher hourly wages, that's going to be a a big issue coming up for a lot of these growers. So great thing to point out there, (laughs) Mylon. So let's switch to something maybe a little bit happier here. Let's talk about what has you guys most excited. I mean, with all of this new technology, with everything that we have happening, what are you most excited about in terms of the future of forage research? Steve, I'm going to go to you first.
5: Okay, that there are some really exciting things I, I do think that we see on the horizon. One is we see some, some undergraduate and graduate students who are really pumped up about forages and agriculture and almost always in connection with animals. And so, in the class that I teach, about half of my class is animal science students; half were crop science students. And so, when it when it comes to the forages, this melds those two departments into one very strong group. Yes, you've got your individual strengths within the animal kids like animals and the crop kids like the crop side of it. But with with the forages, that's a blending operation. And that gets me excited. And I and I think when you go out and you talk to producers or or folks that have gone to a university and they are uh, practicing, On the ground, what they learn, you're going to see that integration and that excitement with the students out there. So I think so much of it is the kids that are coming up. And uh, Mylon mentioned earlier about students returning to the farm, and we want to see more students obviously return to the farm. And that that continues building that uh, legacy and that uh, long-term heritage on that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot in there, you know, the technology, the the crosstalk. I mean, I can speak to that because my degrees are actually all in animal science, you know. But here I am working as an agronomist. I think it's so important to be able to speak both languages because really, why are we growing those forages is to feed the animals. What about you, Mylan? What are you excited about?
4: Well, actually... uh... The last five, six, seven years for me have been the, the whole irrigation technology change that we've seen in the Northwest it was being spearheaded really by University of Idaho and Washington, the two irrigation specialists there, uh, Lisa Leap uh, mobile drip irrigation, uh, low elevation sprinkler application and more energy precision application, you know, and, and showcased what six, eight years ago at the uh, Western States alfalfa and forage symposium. To me, that has been really exciting from an extension standpoint of trying to get producers to take a look at that and make some some changes uh, little by little. And and a number of them now are converting over. And we're seeing uh, really good savings on water, savings on power, and where people are short on water with all these droughts that are showing up now and probably will in the future. You, you know, maybe you don't save water and maybe you don't save power, but we're seeing uh, incredible yield responses compared to what they were getting with uh, compared to some of this older irrigation technology and that. So uh, that to me has been really exciting that the latter part of my career. So
1: that's a really, another good point. Glenn, what about you? What are you excited about with forages?
3: Well, I think that some of the new tools with technology, like genetic mapping, you know, we've, I've set through genetic, Uh, presentations for 20 years and they're always promised the moon and i think we've finally arrived where we can identify traits now in alfalfa that will speed up the breeding process by a year and and so that that could get important either disease resistance or or drought tolerance, maybe, and forage quality that I think that will just give the the uh, alfalfa breeders more tools to be able to to improve either one trade or more in a much shorter time. So that's that's a real positive thing I, I see coming.
1: For sure. Dan, we'll, we'll finish with you on this one.
2: <laughs> well, first big thing is we are going to have a high bypass protein alfalfa in the 10 years down the road. And that's really exciting to me because that will be uh, truly the next major change after the low lignin alfalfa. I I do want to second the comments that Glenn made about breeding, uh, this whole CRISPR effort and so on, not only is enhancing the current breeding programs, but it's allowing us to go in new directions, uh, some yield increases, some leaf retention increases, and a few other things I can't talk about <laughs> that are, are only available because the breeding has been made a lot easier than what it would have been in the past. So I, I think we have some good potentials there. The other thing again, and I keep going back to the machinery, we have new plastics coming down the road for wrapping which will be helpful for baleage, for silage pile coverage. We have some potential new processing systems that are being put in place that I think are worthwhile. I doubt that it'll ever come to be, but one of the systems that I thought was really kind of neat, Minnesota and the Dairy Forage Center worked with the idea of growing tall, bushy alfalfa. And then we'd come by and strip the leaves off and harvest that as silage. And we would then harvest the stems for other purposes, either burning or bedding or whatever. That looked like a way to take here in Madison us from four or five cuttings down to two a year, which would greatly affect the cost savings of harvesting and give us more consistent forage from cutting to cutting because we could adjust the leaf stem ratio and what we were harvesting.
1: All right. Well, for the sake of time, I think we probably are able to ask One more question. So I want to end with asking, you know, what do you think is the number one or the biggest problem that needs to be addressed in the short term? Or what's your biggest concern in terms of the future of forage research? And we'll start in the east here with Dan and head west.
2: Well, I think we're going to have to put a lot of effort into greenhouse gases as we're looking at hiring our new forage specialist. That'll probably be one of the areas of work because rules are going to be developed, as Glenn mentioned. The economics are going to come out and it's far better than an agronomist have some data to talk about. Emily, as as you know, looking around, there's a lot of opinions and not much fact at this point (laughs) with regard to
3: emissions.
1: How about
3: you, Glenn? Yeah, I think recruiting good forage research and extension people will will be more of a challenge because there's less, just less producers that, you know, growing up on in those systems. And it's it's just going to be an ever increasing problem. But I think there are some excellent tools now that we didn't have 20 years ago or or more national alfalfa and forage alliance has been very successful in getting some funding for alfalfa and forages and just got another uh, sizable increase, although it's still far short of the other big commodity crops. Mm -hmm. And, and that is enabling multiple States to uh, focus on a project that would benefit regions of the U.S. in in alfalfa and forages. So there's there's some good tools. It's just going to be a a challenge in uh, replacing good quality people in not just academically trained, but some with some agronomic background.
1: Great point. How about you, Steve?
5: Funding. No question about it that funding is going to be one of our major obstacles that we have to somehow embrace as well as move it forwards to make it successful for the young folks coming along. They, they, they've got, you've got to be willing to risk a little bit too. You can't always be super conservative in your research. You got to be willing to say, why am I seeing something? And And then if it seems odd, then go find some funding to help, Answer those questions. Funding is going to be a really big, important component of future research as well as extension.
1: That's a a great talking point, and probably we could have a whole other episode just talking about that. But yeah, we know that that, that's hugely important. How about you, Mylan?
4: For me, I guess I look at it as uh, our growers, our forage growers, have got to become more political. There's strength in numbers. And across so many states, forages are the number one commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you add in, you know, how they affect all the other industries, the livestock industries or the pleasure industries, of horses, et cetera. I just see that as uh, it's a frustrating it, for me. It's been frustrating, I guess. I just see the potential that they could have in terms of getting us more funding uh, and being more politic compared to what some of the other commodity groups do. And uh, so somehow we need to get our growers to be, uh, step up to the plate and become more political and go to their legislatures, uh, to ask for funding, go to Congress, ask for more funding. It's been great. that, uh, You know, NAFA, Oregon Forage and Grassland Council, there has been some progress that way nationally. So, so that has been good, but it's been slow. So.
1: Great point. I mean, working through your, your state organizations that kind of funnel up into that national organization, NAFA. But the sad part is not even every state has a forage association, you know, right. I mean, and even big states like Montana that don't have them, that's a shame. And maybe that's, that's somewhere that we could get started. So I lied to you guys. I want to ask one more question because I feel like we need to end on something positive, maybe not something negative here. (laughs) So I want to ask, what's your best piece of advice for somebody that's maybe early on in their career, whether it be academics focused or whether they're an agronomy advisor, what's something that you think that you could give to them a piece of advice you could give to them to really help them out? We'll go with Mylan first.
4: I, I guess I would say that it, it can be an incredible career. you while you you're working for somebody or an organization you, if you're with extension or research you you get to be almost ninety ninety five percent your own boss so you're playing within the the rules of the game, so to speak. It, it can be an incredible career very satisfying, frustrating a little bit along the way, but there's there's some real victories that you can come about and help change sort of change
5: the world if you will.
1: Thanks, Milan. How
5: about you, Steve? Just picking up on what Mylon said, I would say this, be true to yourself and those people whom you were collaborating and working with. If you you are doing that, you can wake up in the morning and feel like, hey, you know what? We can make this day even better than what it was yesterday. And uh, you've got goals in mind. You've got good people uh, to work with. And be true to yourself.
1: Perfect. Glenn, how about you?
5: Well,
3: I would advise young producers and uh people that would want to go into either research or extension to get a, a good diverse background as as you are, Emily. I've I have two degrees in animal science and but realize the need for uh, the forages to support those livestock industries. So, so get a good diverse background in, in various fields and particularly in the sciences and, and look to mentorship and get out among the producers and, and ask them good questions and, and they'll give, they can give you a lot of information if, if you know how to approach that. So that would be my
1: advice. Wonderful. Definitely. And Dan, what about you?
2: Well, I would say that the important thing is to recognize the differences in people and to address and make use of that, that not everybody has the same goals, Uh, not everybody learns the same way. I always considered only about 10% of the farmers went to field days, but another 30 or 40% would read the magazines. So we need to put out information on different venues, but also some are more interested in making money. Some are more interested in a life in the country. Some people even just get a couple horses and move out to the country.
1: (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. (laughs)
2: but pick it on you again emily (laughs) i know (laughs) uh, but the important thing is is that that's and that's quite different than most other situations if you're working in row crops it's pretty much just how do i get the most yield if you're working in uh even a lot of other areas of agriculture there's only a few choices but in addition to what i said about different types we have organic we have conservation oriented we have different species of animals that we're trying to feed and all of those things uh, make quite a difference i've even worked with alpacas here in wisconsin and um, <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting just to learn about the different animals and their needs
1: absolutely and for what it's worth i think these are all really good pieces of advice and i'll just add my own on is I was very fortunate to to be able to early on in my career w- network and work with folks like you guys. And I think that that's had a, a huge impact on helping to make my success. So I want to say thank you to those on the call. And there's been a lot of other ones out there as well. But for anybody that's just getting started, find those mentors, find those people that you can talk to and look to for advice, because that's really going to help you out tenfold. So... I just want to say thank you guys so much for joining me on here today. I think this was a really great conversation. I wish we could do it in person. Thank you all so much.
2: Thank you. Oh, it's good to see you all, everybody. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Guys, yeah.
1: again, yeah. Thank, thank you. Tonight. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Emily. And thanks to you, our listeners. If you'd like more information about forage genetics or any of the information you heard about today, please contact your local alfalfa seed dealer or visit our website at www.foragegenetics.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Because of factors outside forage genetics control, such as weather, soil, planting, and product application, individual results cannot be predicted or guaranteed by Forage Genetics International. Always read and follow all label instructions.